Listener's warning. There'll be some topics covered in today's episode that are not very appropriate for listeners under the age of 13. Some of these topics will include radical belief systems and a brief discussion involving allegations of childhood sexual interference. Thank you for remaining open-minded. And I quote, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Unquote. This is a very short passage from the 1904 publication called The Book of the Law. You've probably heard this before, but maybe you're not quite sure from where. How does it make you feel when you hear those words, do what thou wilt? This is probably one of the most misunderstood quotations in occult literature. The Book of the Law is the written foundation which inspired the creation of the magical society known as Argentinum Astrum, which is Latin for Silver Star. This secret society and the Book of the Law have inspired many artists, musicians, and Satanists in the last 117 years. But before all that, back in February of 1904, the Book of the Law came into existence through an unconventional process. It is understood that the author was guided by an unseen force, this force being an interdimensional entity described as an astral messenger. This messenger called itself Iowas and was said to be of the same race as the Egyptian god Horus. Over a period of three days, the human channel diligently recorded all three chapters of the Book of the Law from Iowas and all while on his honeymoon in Cairo. This was done in the effort to usher in a new eon on planet Earth, one the author called the Eon of Horus. And he was told this would be a great time of indulgences and selfishness for mankind. Alistair Crowley is one of the most documented occult practitioners in all of history. Many consider Crowley a powerful visionary and gifted magician of ceremonial and sexual magic. Others consider Alistair Crowley one of the most vile and perverse humans to ever walk the earth. In part one of this two-part exploration of Aleister Crowley's life, I'm going to cover the years 1875 to 1900. Who was Crowley before he was known as the wickedest man in the world? Part one will cover Crowley's upbringing, his college years, and eventual initiation into his first occult society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Welcome to the dark side of light work. I'm Wynne Thornley. In life, I'm a certified and professionally practicing esoteric teacher and channel to the ethers, specializing in demystifying the dark arts. I'm also a supernatural nerd and do a lot of personal research into things that go bump in the night. My fascination with the unknown began when I was a kid due to having my own misunderstood psychic experiences. I'm not a professional historical sleuth, just a gal who likes to absorb cool information and share it with anyone who will listen. I believe my lifelong fascination with the strange and unusual has prepared me for the work I'm called to do now, taking me places other lightworkers will not go. These experiences have taught me a lot about how many fallacies we are told and actually believe about the world of the unknown. Join me as I share with you what I have learned about the realms of the paranormal, mystics of the past, and places that might make you feel uneasy. I want to lift the veil a little bit and take the Hollywood out of the supernatural and metaphysics. And if you like what you hear, 
I invite you to follow along by subscribing and please tell your friends. To prepare for this subject of interest, I accepted right away that there would be lots of content to explore. I was already fairly familiar with Aleister Crowley, and I was confident my personal bookshelves would be the perfect place to begin my research. I was delighted to find no less than six books within my occult section that had Crowley waiting for me in the index. Some of the books brought surface-level information, while a few of them offered full chapters dedicated to the life and contributions to literature and the occult left behind by Aleister Crowley. With the increased variety of ebooks, I splurged and I purchased his most infamous works, including The Book of the Law, The Book of Lies, The Diary of a Drug Fiend, and Moonchild. There are several more works available by Crowley, including some pretty risque poetry for his time. However, I wanted to focus more on the works that everyone seemed to link to the legend and mystery that was Aleister Crowley. The more I read about Crowley, the more I could see he was born to show the world how to become the fullest expression of yourself, in spite of what might be considered popular in your time. The decadence, flamboyance, and depravity Crowley welcomed into his world was more than his contemporaries could bear. His end of life served as a lesson of how ultimate health and balance is required for the mind, body, and soul for lasting magic and manifestation to occur with harmony. You need more than the ability to conjure to reap the rewards of perpetual prosperity and unlimited potency of power. Though Crowley was shunned and isolated by some of the mystery societies of his time, he would also not be ignored nor undermined by the same groups that rejected him. But before I get too ahead of myself, I want to go backwards. As everyone else on this planet, Aleister Crowley has an origin story. In order to understand how he ended up later in life, we must go back to the beginning. So, who was Aleister Crowley before he became one of the most notorious spiritual gurus to grace the early 1900s? Edward Alexander Crowley was born in the parish of Warwickshire, England on October 12th in the year 1875. The Crowley family resided in a ritzy town known as Royal Leamington Spa, or if you're a local, just Leamington. His father's name was Edward, and his mother's maiden name was Emily Bertha Bishop. There was a 19-year age difference between his mother and father, but they found happiness in their marriage together. Crowley Sr. had training in engineering, but his wealth came as a result of his father's success as a brewer. Crowley and Company of Elton brews ales and stouts that were enjoyed by the locals from its founding in 1763 until World War I and temperance would slow down the business to a grinding halt. Edward Crowley Sr. inherited the whole Crowley brewing fortune and never really had to get a full-time job in his life. By the time Edward Jr. was born, Edward Sr. was 46 years old and already enjoying retirement. Crowley Sr. was raised as a Quaker, but converted to the Plymouth Brethren Group as an adult. I did a little digging because I was unfamiliar with either group before researching this podcast episode, so allow me to expand on this quickly. The group known as the Quakers originated in England around the mid-17th century. This group was also known simply as Friends. 
The Quakers are a Protestant denomination that was once known as the Religious Society of Friends. Quakers from all walks of life are united under their core belief that we all have the ability to be able to access the light within ourselves and that of God in everyone. There is an understanding within the Quakers that everyone is equal and that an ordained hierarchy is not required for anyone to create a relationship with God. The Quakers were also well known for their plain dress and sober living. They also supported the end of slavery, refused to participate in war, and refused to swear an oath of any kind. Whereas the Plymouth Brethren take a much different approach. The Plymouth Brethren, which are also known as Assemblies of Brethren, is a non-conformist evangelical movement that originally developed in Dublin, Ireland in the 1820s. They prefer to see themselves as a network of like-minded free churches with no Christian denomination. Just like the Quakers, they do not believe in an ordained hierarchy. Everybody's equal. Their core beliefs emphasize what is known as sola scriptura. Basically, they believe the Bible is the supreme authority for church doctrine and practice. They take the Bible literal in every sense and believe it is above and beyond any other source or authority. Crowley's mother and father were deeply devoted to the teachings of the Plymouth Brethren. Each morning over breakfast, the family would take turns reading chapters out of the Bible. The obsession over the end of times, the second coming of Christ, and all things considered sinful behavior were hot topics of interest in the Crowley home. In due course, Edward Sr. took on the role as a traveling preacher in hopes of converting more and more people over to the Plymouth Brethren group and he was often packing his son along with him. Edward Jr. revered his father and was inspired to become a preacher himself when he was young. And though his father was deeply devoted, it was actually Edward Jr.'s mother who ingrained and enforced the teachings of the Plymouth Brethren at home. Some of their philosophies encouraged their followers to live as simply as possible and that mankind is only here to serve God. That meant no toys and no literature outside of the Bible or other church-approved readings. As Edward Jr. aged, he began to feel constrained by the strict rules and guidelines of his religious school and home life. Where other children his age were allowed to be outside playing with the neighborhood kids, Edward Jr. was encouraged to stay inside and study his Bible. For a time in his younger years, Edward Jr. did become a Brethren brother, and he felt satisfied with this for a while. He loved feeling like he was doing deeds of holiness and valor, and thought of himself as a Christian knight. He liked the idea of making Jesus and God proud of the good work he was doing with his time on earth. But things would change as he aged. Edward Jr. would eventually get kicked out of the Brethren. He was accused of corrupting another Brethren brother, though there is no indication of how exactly Crowley corrupted him. I wasn't quite sure if it was Crowley testing his brother's faith or if the corruption was sexual in nature. Most sources I found implied that Crowley was always a little cheeky when asked about this situation. A couple of the sources I was looking into grazed over this a little bit and stated that Crowley was unable to remember what exactly happened between him and this other boy. 
Yet, there was a portion of the documentary I watched called Alistair Crowley in Search of the Beast 666 that definitely suggested it was age-appropriate sexual exploration. Either way, this event would give everyone a glimpse into what the coming years would look like. Eventually, Edward Jr. would leave Christianity altogether in favor of Western esotericism. But more on that a little bit later in this episode. The Crowley family expanded briefly in the year 1880 with the birth of a baby girl. Not much was written about Crowley's infant sister that I could find, except that she was on this planet for a very short time. After the child's death less than a year later, the Crowley family uprooted and moved away from Royal Leamington Spa to the town of Red Hill, Surrey. Edward Jr. would begin attending the Christian boarding school, H.T. Habershon, which was located in Hastings in East Sussex. Here, he stayed only a short time, and then he was moved to Ebor Preparatory School in Cambridge. Ebor was run by Reverend Henry Darcy. This was a man that Edward Jr. would have many conflicts with and even considered a sadist. This authority figure would add to young Crowley's growing disdain for organized Christianity. Up next was a life-changing event that would shatter Crowley Jr.'s perspective and beliefs of what he was taught his whole life. In March of 1887, Edward Jr. would experience the death of his father. He was only 11 at the time. In his later years, Alistair would speak highly of his relationship with Crowley Sr. and said that he considered him a hero and a friend. Though he didn't feel a great emotional attachment to his father, he held a great respect for him. Alistair was also open with the fact that this was a big turning point in his life. After his father had succumbed to the cancer he developed on his tongue, young Crowley would come to inherit one third of his father's fortune. After that, he would begin his lifelong path of disruption, disobedience, and challenging the ideals of his church, school, and elders. Reverend Champigny would be one of young Crowley's adversaries until Crowley was removed from Ebor Preparatory School. Things get a little bit hazy here. It is unclear how long after the loss of his father that Crowley left this boarding school, which was on bad terms. In the course of my research, I came across a source that seemed to suggest that Edward Jr. confessed to his mother of his experiences of sexual interference while attending Ebor. As an adult, Alistair was known to openly speak about the harsh treatment he received from the head reverend of the school, but I never found anything to indicate if this abuse was caused by someone on staff at the school or by one of his classmates. Either way, that and other health issues that young Crowley was suffering from resulted in Emily Crowley removing her son from Ebor. In other sources, the story of Crowley leaving Ebor was a little bit different. There is no mention of sexual abuse, but it spoke more in depth about a condition of the urinary system and kidneys that were causing health issues young Crowley did indeed experience. It had been documented that his doctor had discovered the presence of albumin in his urine. You see, albumin is a simple protein that is found in our blood serum, and it is abnormal to find it in our urine. From what I quickly read about this condition, 
When elevated levels of albumin are found in the urine, this is usually a symptom of kidney disease. I want you to make sure to check my show notes at the end of this episode. I have left some links and a list of books that I used for a large portion of this episode's research there for you to find. I knew that there was going to be lots to find, as I mentioned before, and what I have left for you in my show notes is content that I hope that you will enjoy. So what was next for Mama and Son Crowley? With nothing tying them to Red Hill anymore, Emily and Crowley Jr. were encouraged by his uncle to move to the country with them. His uncle could see that Edward Jr.'s health was suffering. Not only due to his physical illness, his uncle could see that this was also partly due to the volatile relationship Edward Jr. had with his strict and cold mother. Emily was already beginning to distance herself from her son. She freely began to refer to her son as the Great Beast. Yes, the same one from the Bible. This only encouraged Edward Jr. to embrace that idea of himself. After his father's death, it is said that Crowley Jr. began to identify more and more with the darker aspects of the Bible, the great beasts, the scarlet women, and he kept diving deeper and deeper into revelations. Another part of the reason he left Ebor boarding school was due to Edward Jr. beginning to question the validity and consistency of the biblical teachings he had dedicated hours upon hours of his short life to. Since his mother was as devoted to the Plymouth Brethren ideals as his father once was, she began to loathe and dislike her son for what she considered his direct disobedience. Emily was tired of the sin he was bringing into her world. His uncle was the first adult around Junior that could see this was exasperating Edward's health condition and behavior. His uncle made the decision to let Edward Junior relax and explore new interests. Later in life, Alistair Crowley would reminisce fondly on his years spent with his uncle in the country, even calling them some of the best years of his life. His uncle was the first family member that encouraged Edward Jr. to get outside and get active. As Crowley was now entering his teens, he was experiencing hiking and mountain climbing for the first time. The fresh air and physical exertion did well for Edward Jr.'s health. Being outside hiking and climbing would become a lifelong interest and passion for Crowley. Crowley just loved the challenge, the danger, and the athletic satisfaction that scaling mountains offered him. A couple more spices of life that Edward Jr.'s uncle can be credited with exposing his nephew to was booze and women. Together, uncle and nephew would head into the local taverns, enjoy a beer, and enjoy some prostitutes. Alistair Crowley's first experience with what he refers to as the Scarlet Women in his life was at age 15. After that, he was forever on a conquest to engage in sex and debauchery with prostitutes and followers alike. When asked about his interest in the ladies of the night, he was once quoted as saying, and I quote, They ought to be a convenience brought round the back door, like milk, unquote. Beginning at a young age and after his father's death, Crowley confessed to fantasizing about being humiliated by sinful and morally corrupt women. He was fascinated by sadomasochism, and this would carry on right through until his death. This could very well have been due to the oppressive relationship he had with his mother. He never spoke highly of her at all and called her, and I quote, 
a brainless bigot of the most narrow, logical, and inhumane type. Unquote. No love lost there. As a huge act of rebellion, Edward began sleeping with the maid his mother hired, and they reportedly did the deed in his mother's bed. This caused for the dismissal of this woman, and there was little to no emotion on Alistair's part. He would brag later to others that this woman had to enter into prostitution after working for the Crowleys. After what she did with Alistair, her reputation was in ruins, and no one would hire her. Crowley claims that her life as a prostitute actually led to her becoming the first victim of Jack the Ripper. Pretty crazy, right? I read in a couple of places that Alistair used to tell people that he actually knew the identity of Jack the Ripper and said this person was an occultist as well. There was very little information that I found to back this up, so I think I'm going to continue digging and I'll let you know if I find out more about this in part two. While Edward Jr. stayed with his uncle, he attended Malvern College and Tonbridge School, both for a short time. With the increased freedom to explore books and activities that were once forbidden to young Edward, he began to place his interest in other places and showed boredom with the Bible and school. He was more outwardly questioning the inconsistencies in the Bible by this time. Edward Jr. also became increasingly skeptical in regards to the authenticity of his religious teachers and leaders. This is where the rebellion stage would then transform into full-blown defiance against all things Christianity or authoritative. Crowley would take up smoking and masturbating and having relations with prostitutes until he finally picked up gonorrhea. It was at this point and after getting tired of dealing with all that sinning, Emily sent her son off to live with a brethren tutor, and then she got her son enrolled in Eastbourne College. Here, Crowley began to embrace his extracurricular activities. Eastbourne is where Crowley began to form his lifelong passion for poetry as well. He would pursue this area of study in his next level of learning and would go on to publish many of his erotic and unusual poems and stories. Chess also became a pastime that kept Alistair busy and using his intellect, but it was the expansion in the interest of mountain climbing that consumed a lot of his time and energy while at Eastbourne College. In 1894, Crowley Jr. climbed Beachy Head which is a chalk headland close to Eastbourne and East Sussex. I was curious, so I looked up some images, and the white cliffs against the deep blue sea is just spectacular to look at. After Beachy Head, Crowley headed to the Alps, where he then joined the Scottish Mountaineering Club while extending his stay in Glasgow. Did you know that the Scottish Mountaineering Club is the second oldest of its kind in the world? It's a private club and only has about 400 active members today. They publish guidebooks and run a list of Munroist. What Munroist are, it would be a list of mountains that measure over the height of 3,000 meters and is of interest to fellow climbers. Now let's get back to Crowley. It was in the following year after aligning with the Scottish Mountaineering Club that he would return to the Bernese Alps. This is a range of the Alps located in the west of Switzerland. In his time there, Crowley was said to have climbed several areas of the Bernese Alps, including Eiger, the glacier area of Trift, Jungfrau, 
Monch and the Wetterhorn. Most of these have summits over 3,000 meters, reaching over 4,100 meters in the case of Monch. Many times he preferred to be alone on these mountain climbing trips. Crowley was pretty arrogant and took little guidance from others, so it was natural he would take this time to recharge on his own or with one or two other compatible hikers like his friend Oscar Eckenstein. Trips to the Alps would become a yearly adventure for Alistair where he could blow off some serious steam. Beginning in the year 1895, Alistair Crowley began his three-year journey at Trinity College, which is a constituent college of Cambridge University. Trinity College was founded in the year 1546 by King Henry VIII. So it, it, that kind of makes Trinity one of the oldest, it's one of the largest, and one of the most prestigious colleges in Cambridge. By the time of enrollment, Edward had dropped his given name and adopted the name Alistair. This is what he said of his name change, and I quote, For many years I loathed being called Alec, partly because of the unpleasant sound and sight of the word, partly because it was the name by which my mother called me. Edward did not seem to suit me, and the diminutives Ted or Ned were even less appropriate. Alexander was too long, and Sandy suggested toe hairs and freckles. I had read in some book or other that the most favorable name for becoming famous is one consisting of a dactyl followed by a spondee, as at the end of a hexameter, like Jeremy Taylor. Alistair Crowley fulfilled these conditions, and Alistair is the Gaelic form of Alexander. To adopt it would satisfy my romantic ideals." Unquote. Alistair would be the first of many aliases Crowley would use over the course of his life, but in Trinity, he was getting comfortable with the name Alistair and who Alistair was. One thing to note about his entry into adult college, this is the point in time where Alistair came into his full inheritance. At this point in his life, Money was the last thing he had to worry about, so he began to explore the areas of his true interests. When he first enrolled into Trinity College, he originally chose the three-year undergraduate program of moral sciences, studying philosophy. But he began to feel a pull in another direction, so he followed it. Alistair was able to convince his personal tutor to allow him into the English literature program instead which I find pretty amazing because I read that this program was not even part of the curriculum at the time. Alistair was enjoying his new courses of study and many of his poems that he worked on in class would later appear in student-run publications. This list includes literature magazine and publisher The Grantab, Cambridge Magazine, and Cantab. Though Alistair enjoyed literature and poetry studies, he used his college time most effectively grooming his pastimes. Chess was still very relevant for Crowley, and his time at Trinity only improved his skills. He excelled within his peer group and eventually became the president of his college chess club. He was always working his game too. I had read that Alistair played chess a minimum of two hours a day. At one point, Crowley had even considered becoming a professional chess player. But that intense interest, it wouldn't last. His interest would soon gravitate to the realms of magic and conjuring. In December of 1896, Crowley was on holiday in Stockholm 
where he had had his first significant mystical experience. It was suggested in some of the sources I read that this mystical experience involved his first consensual same-sex experience. And this allowed Alistair to finally recognize and embrace his bisexualism. There was a point when Alistair developed a relationship with Mr. Herbert Charles Pulliet, and this in a time where same-sex relationships were still very taboo in most areas of the world. Herbert and Alistair's relationship was passionate and one that would bring Crowley regret later in life. At the time of Herbert and Alistair's relationship, Alistair became more and more exploratory in the area of esoteric mysticism. This was one area that Herbert could not relate to or engage with Alistair in. It was this difference that caused them to split up not long after they connected, and this always stuck with Alistair as a failure and one he wished he could change. 1897 would bring a brief but intense mysterious illness that had Alistair questioning his mortality. This health event would be the catalyst that would cause him to abandon his diplomatic career plans and pursue occult studies full time. Alistair found the teachings of author Edward Waite when he read his work called The Book of Magic and of Pax and another occult section called The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary by Carl von Eckhart Schwassen. That's a mouthful. Aseldama, A Place to Bury Strangers In, was the first volume of poetry that Crowley published in the year 1898 after leaving Trinity College. There was heavy foreshadowing of his future occult excesses within this publication. In one statement, he wrote that God and Satan had fought over his soul, and I quote, God conquered. Now I only have one doubt left. Which of the twain was God? Unquote. This collection of about a hundred poems did not do very well in the area of sales, but this did not deter Alistair from continuing to release strings of other poems in the same year. This would include a collection of erotic poetry that had to be published abroad due to it being prohibited content by the British authorities. Crowley moved into a flat in Chancery Lane, London after he left Trinity College. He took on the new alias of Russian Count Vladimir and devoted all of his time to studying the occult. Many folks would claim that Count Vladimir, he had a mysterious, ghostly energy about him and mesmerizing eyes. Alistair would say that this was his astral spirit and relished in making others uneasy. Folks in his building would complain of feeling dizzy and off when they were on his floor, and they were worried about an evil presence coming from Alistair's apartment. 1898 would also be the year that Alistair met a chemist named Julian Baker. This happened when Crowley traveled to Zermatt, Switzerland for a mountain climbing trip. Julian and Alistair clicked right away as they shared their common interest in alchemy and other occult studies. Julian shared information about a mystical society that Alistair should check out when they get back to London. This society was known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. For those who have never heard about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, I will give a little crash course here on who they were and what they were trying to accomplish. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is more commonly known as the Golden Dawn. This was a magical order that was created by three Freemasons, William Robert Woodman, 
William Wynne Westcott and Samuel Liddell McGregor Matthews. It was founded in 1888 and was active in the Great Britain area. The Golden Dawn was devoted to the study of metaphysics, paranormal occurrences, and the occult. There were three orders or levels of initiations, the first, second, and third order. One must finish the first order's studies before being initiated into the second and so on and so forth. And leveling up can only be approved by members of the third order. Each initiation revealed new techniques and teachings to deepen the student's connection with earth, oneself, and spirit. The first order was all about learning the basics of how to work with the earth elements. The initiates would also study esoteric philosophies that were based on the Hermetic Kabbalah. Basically, the first order was focused on personal development and growth. Esoteric tools like astrology, tarot card divination, and geomancy were learned and mastered at this level. The second order was all about learning magic. Scrying, astral travel, and alchemy were explored in great depth and mastered before going on to the next and highest rank, the third order. This level contained all the secret chiefs who were masters of their skills and talents, and they guided the lower orders. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was active mainly between 1888 and 1930. Some of the members you may have heard of, they include the following, the famous author Bram Stoker, Pamela Coleman Smith, she was the artist and co-creator of the popular writer Waite Tarot Deck, W.B. Yeats, he was a famous Irish poet and writer, and probably the most well-known was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Though he was most famous for the Sherlock Holmes books, Doyle was also a doctor, scientist, and spiritualist. There were some groups still passing along teachings from the Golden Dawn as late as the 1970s, with all their teaching material available to those who search for it. You can find Golden Dawn teachings and others from that time quite easily now. Modern day concepts of ritual and magic that are the core of Wicca and Thelema were inspired by the teachings of the Golden Dawn. This group was a major disruptor and influencer of 20th century Western occultism. But back in Alistair Crowley's days, when he heard about the Golden Dawn, they had just reached their first decade of being active. When Crowley and Baker returned to London from their mountaineering trip in Switzerland in the fall of 1898, Baker set up a meeting between Alistair and a man named George Cecil Jones. This was Baker's brother-in-law, and he was also a member of the Golden Dawn. From there, Jones introduced Crowley to one of the founders, Samuel Liddell Gregor Matthews. On November 18, 1898, and by the direction of Mathers, Alistair Crowley received his first initiation into the Golden Dawn. The ceremony took place in the Isis Urania Temple held at London's Mark Mason's Hall. Each initiate into the Golden Dawn gets to choose a magical motto that suits their essence. Crowley took the magical motto of Frater Perduabo, which he interpreted it as, I shall endure to the end. Once initiated into his first magical society, Crowley was eager to learn. He soon invited Alan Bennett, who was a senior Golden Dawn member. He invited Alan to come live with him and become his personal magical tutor. 
Bennett was the one who introduced Alistair to ceremonial magic and habitual drug use. Together, they attempted to perform rituals from a book called Goetia, also known as the Lesser Key of Solomon. This is a book that details how to conjure angels and demons for the purposes only known to the person invoking them. This can be very dangerous ceremonial magic if you are sloppy. So like doing a bunch of drugs and going into a conjuring ceremony is what I would call sloppy. And this is everything that Alan and Alistair did together. All good things must come to an end, as they say. Alan soon got the travel bug and left for South Asia to study Buddhism in the year 1899. Crowley also took the opportunity to change his living arrangements and purchased the Bullskin House of Foyers, which is on the shore of Loch Ness in Scotland. Here, he tried on a brand new alias, Laird of Bullskin, and he took to wearing traditional Highland attire. He really embraced Scotland's culture. Even when he traveled back to London, he would be in full Highland attire, whether he was just having visits or doing business with the Golden Dawn. He continued to write and publish his poetry at this time with mixed reviews. Along with poetry, Alistair was progressing through the lower grades of the Golden Dawn very quickly. By 1900, Crowley felt ready to move up to his second initiation. The thing is, Crowley was very unpopular in the London group. Traditionally, members of the Golden Dawn are encouraged to lead a life of sobriety and are advised against using psychedelics and stimulants, especially while in ceremonial ritual. There were long periods of fasting up to six months for the First Order initiates, and this fasting included celibacy. Alistair's libertarian lifestyle that boasted the love of drink, drugs, and prostitutes caused a lot of animosity towards Crowley, and he would often feud with other members. One of his biggest feuds was actually with W.B. Yeats. As the story goes, the London Temple of the Golden Dawn refused to initiate Alistair into the Second Order, and this infuriated Crowley. So, in true Crowley nature, he went over their heads and contacted his mentor Mathers, who happened to be in Paris at the time. He complained about the London's temple decision to deny him what he wanted. Mathers encouraged Crowley to visit him so he may conduct the initiation ceremony at the Ahathor Temple in Paris. Alistair did as he was told, and Mathers reversed the London Lodge's decision and personally initiated Alistair Crowley into the Second Order of the Golden Dawn. This caused a huge upset between the London Lodge and Mathers. You see, when Crowley returned to the London Temple, he put in a request to the acting secretary, who was Miss Cracknell. He put in a request to produce the papers that acknowledge the second order grade that he is now entitled to. This was the last time Mathers would be able to overstep his London temple. His representative that takes care of things when Mathers was gone was a lady named Mrs. Farr. She wrote Mathers after this request, telling him of her disappointment in his leadership and how she felt the London Temple was now weakened by his choices and that she would like to resign as his representative. At the time, there was already distrust growing between Mathers and another founder of the Golden Dawn, 
William Wynne Westcott. Mathers believed it was actually Westcott trying to stir a pot and get a rise out of him. Mathers replied with a letter stating this accusation in around February 16th of 1900. By March 3rd, the Lodge chose seven adepts who were to form a committee that was to investigate the case of Mathers initiating Crowley in spite of the disapproval of the London Temple. This is where things get a little egotistical. Mathers sent an immediate response to those accusations by declining to prove any proof of this, refusing to even acknowledge the London Temple as an authority, and dismissing Miss Farr as his representative as of March 23, 1900. And under Mathers' directions, Crowley and his mistress at the time, Elaine Simpson, who was also a Golden Dawn member, attempted to seize the vault of the adepts from the London Lodge members. The vault of the adepts was a temple space in West Kensington. Here's a portion of a letter that Yeats wrote to Lady Gregory expressing his frustration with Alistair, the attempted takeover of the temple, and why they refused Crowley's second order initiation. And I quote, I have had a bad time of it lately. I told you I was pitting McGregor out of the Kabbalah, the order. Well, last week he sent a mad person whom we refused to initiate to take possession of the rooms, and on being ejected, attempted to retake possession. Having failed in this, he has taken out a summons on the grounds that he is Mather's envoy, and that there is nothing in the constitution of the society to enable us to dispose Mather's. The envoy is really one Crowley, an unspeakable person. He is, I believe, seeking vengeance for our refusal to initiate him. We did not admit him because we did not think a mystical society was intended to be a reformatory. Unquote. At this point, a general meeting was called, this being recorded happening on March 29, 1900. This meeting resulted in Mathers being removed as chief and being expelled from the order. Alistair Crowley was also expelled and then isolated from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Though Alistair and Mathers remained close for many years after this, there was a point where they ended up turning on one another. I had read that each man began conjuring up and attacking the other with demonic entities. This carried on until Mathers' death in 1918. Mathers was 64. This event brings me to the end of part one of my exploration into Aleister Crowley's life and writings. Being removed from the Golden Dawn creates another pivot point for Aleister Crowley, one that will take him to Mexico, Egypt, Algeria, and parts of the United States. He has yet to write the Book of the Law, but it won't be long before he begins to explore new mystery schools and new opportunities to achieve the recognition he's looking for in the dark arts. The second half of his life heads down a dark, drug-infused hallway that leaves lovers in mental institutions and followers dying in unexpected ways. If you think Crowley was self-absorbed before, just wait until I reveal the rest of the story. Thank you so much for popping by and spending some time with me today. I really appreciate you being here. I'm excited for the growth and change happening for season two, and I would love to hear your feedback. 
The dark side of light work is where I will be exploring topics of the strange and unusual that I have long researched myself. My intention is to bring light to the darker subjects others shy away from in spirituality, energy work, and the paranormal. Show topics will include mysterious places, infamous hauntings, stories of the unusual, and psychics from recent history and antiquity, just like Aleister Crowley. I invite you to leave a message at my Anchor FM page letting me know how you like it. You can also share your personal experience with a show topic or even share a show idea. I listen to each message and may include your idea or recording in a future episode. Since I'm an independent podcast host and producer, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts would really help others find my show. If you like what you hear on the dark side of light work, I invite you to share a rating and review on the podcast provider you're tuned in on right now. Outside of my podcast platforms, you can find me on the internet and social media by searching for Winds, Soul, Remedies, and The Dark Side of Light Work. You can also find me on my Patreon page. Search for my name, Wynne Thornley, or search The Dark Side of Light Work. I invite you to become a Patreon for only $5 a month. Your contribution helps with the growth and expansion of The Dark Side of Light Work, and I have lots planned for exclusive content for my loyal Patreons as the year rolls out any support is welcome and I feel so grateful for the support I have already received so thank you so much. In my next episode I will be sharing part two of my exploration into Aleister Crowley's life and writings. I will share what I learned about what happened to Crowley once he was isolated from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the circumstances that led to his channeling of the Book of the Law, and his fascination with sex magic, drugs, and reaching enlightenment. Thank you once again for listening to the end, and I look forward to dropping the next episode soon. So until then, take good care.